Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. In 1945, 52 papyrus texts were found concealed in an earthenware jar buried in the Egyptian desert. They turned out to be early Christian writings, some dating all the way back to the first few centuries AD. Elaine Pagels, a historian of religion at Princeton University, has dedicated her life to studying and interpreting these texts, and it turns out that there are some surprisingly powerful connections between some of the teachings in these ancient texts and the doctrines of the restored gospel. In this episode, Zach Davis spoke with Elaine about her life and research, the importance of wrestling with the big questions of existence, and how religion can open transformative new relationships and perspectives. Elaine Pagels is a historian of religion and the Harrington Spear Payne Professor at Princeton University. Her groundbreaking books include The Gnostic Gospels, The Origin of Satan, and the New York Times bestseller Beyond Belief, The Secret Gospel of Thomas. Her most recent book tells her own story about why she loves investigating the history of religion, Why Religion, A Personal Story. We're excited to share this fascinating conversation with you, and we hope that you enjoy it. And with that, we'll hand it over to Zach. Let's begin. Tell us your name and your title, and give us a broad sense of the trajectory of your career when it comes to religious thinking and teaching. Yes, my name is Elaine Pagels. I teach at Princeton University and teach the history of Christianity in the Department of Religion. I started exploring the history of Christianity after a powerful experience I had as an adolescent. My own family had been Protestant by background, but my father had rejected it all. As soon as he encountered Darwin and the the theories of evolution, he said, oh, well, these are silly old folktales. The world was not created in six days. That's all nonsense. And only uneducated people would believe that. So I was brought up with that kind of attitude, even though sometimes in the Methodist church, it didn't mean much to me. What did was poetry and music and ritual, dance. I didn't realize that much of the poetry and the music and the ritual came out of religious traditions, of Christian and Native American, African American. These are often born in religious traditions. But when I was an adolescent, I went to an evangelical crusade unexpectedly, just because some friends were going. And to my surprise and to my parents' utter horror, I loved it. I was born again. I became an evangelical Christian. I joined the group enthusiastically, and I loved it because it opened up the world from what had seemed like a flat earth to a spiritual dimension that I sensed was there, but I had no sense of access to such kinds of experience as are opened up in our religious traditions. So it was powerful, it was moving, it was an extraordinary experience. And I spent about a year intensely involved with an evangelical group in California until there was a crisis when one of my friends in high school was killed in an automobile accident. 
He was 16 years old, a very brilliant, talented, and remarkable young man. And those of us who knew him were in terrible shock. And I went back to the evangelical group, and I said, you know, this terrible thing happened. And they said, oh, that's, I'm so sorry. Was he born again? And I said, no, he was Jewish. And they said, well, then he said, hell. And I felt like I'd been socked in the stomach. I, I just, I thought that has nothing to do with the love of God, which is what you told me this was about. That's what attracted me here. It was about the closeness of the group. It was about brothers and sisters in Christ. And what? Wasn't Jesus Jewish? What are you talking about? So I just walked out feeling very desolated and alone. And I left it all alone for years. About four or five years later, I began to ask, wait a minute, what was it that hit me there? Was it Christianity? Could it have been any religion? Could it have been Buddhism, for example? What do we know anyway about how Christianity started? So I decided to explore that. But how do you do it? Churches don't tell you. They tell you their version, right? So like you, Zach, I chose a secular university. Harvard had a doctoral program in the study of religion, in which, again, you could study Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity. So I decided I, I would go there. And I wanted to know, what do we know about Jesus? And the first thing I learned is we don't know much. There are gospel traditions that are preserved from 40 to 60 to 70 years after his death, from what his followers and disciples remembered and wrote down. There was a lot else they didn't write down, as the Gospel of John says. But what they did write down, and it's not much, the Gospel of Mark is 17 pages long. It's all. And the others aren't much longer. So we don't know a lot. And what we do know, we have to ask, how do we know this? Anyway, who's telling us? Um, then, to my surprise, something much more startling. Suddenly, we had available to us the find not of the century, but of the last 2,000 years. Just as in the Jewish community, suddenly the Dead Sea Scrolls had been discovered in 1945 and changed entirely the way Jews think about their history because they always thought, oh, well, you know, it all goes back to the rabbis. Well, no, it doesn't. We now know through the Dead Sea Scrolls that it goes back much further than the rabbis, and there are much more range among Jewish communities than anyone had ever thought. This discovery the same year in Egypt, what we call the Nakamadi Library, consisted of over 51 texts. Many of them are Gospels. Many of them claim to offer secret teaching of Jesus. And many of them have different perceptions of Jesus and his message and what it meant. Well, one of our great teachers, his Christo Stendhal, who was actually the Archbishop of Sweden, the Dean of the Divinity School at Harvard, said to me much later, you know, we thought these Gospels were just weird <laughs> until you started working on them. We did. We just thought they're crazy stuff. But I was absolutely captivated by the Gospel of Thomas, which claims to be a list of the sayings of Jesus, just 14 pages. 
many of them identical, as you know, with what's found in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel. But there are some that are very different, that speak about the image of God in, in everyone. And that fascinated me too. And in this gospel, Jesus says at one point, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I was so struck by that. I thought, you don't have to believe that. You know, this just happens to be true. You know? And then I realized it has a spiritual content too, a theological meaning, which I didn't know at first. We now have a much different and much more diverse and wider range of understanding of what the Christian movement was in the time when it just began to flourish in the first century. One of the scholars who was working with me in Egypt, discovering this, was from Brigham Young University, and he felt that there were teachings there about God as divine father and mother, which the church had suppressed for thousands of years, and which the Church of Latter-day Saints had recognized. And so he felt immediately a certain affinity there. And so these have really transformed the way we understand the early Christian movement and how it started. That's, that's amazing. I, I was so curious that you, you were working with a, with a BYU person. I would imagine that, um, like me, <laughs> probably a lot, of, a lot of Christians conflated the Dead Sea Scrolls and Nag Hammadi, if they even had heard of Nag Hammadi. Yes. And in general, I, I, I do think probably mainstream, the mainstream Christian interpretation, at least as it trickled down to the lay people is, yeah, these are a bunch of kind of kooky texts. Yes. They're, yes. I- they're ignorable. But your interpretation, which I'm extremely sympathetic to, is much more revolutionary which is it's a recovery of voices that may have been suppressed. Yes, you're perfectly right that many people think the Dead Sea Scrolls are the same as the Nag Hammadi text. They're not. They're very different. But what they're similar in, Zach, is that um, Jewish tradition, traditional versions of Jewish tradition give all the credit to the rabbis. The texts that were preserved in the Talmud are primarily those that support the the dignity and the theological understanding of the rabbis. The texts that were not preserved are texts that have different ways of perceiving divine authority, different ways of perceiving um, what it means to be a devout Jew, and Different different forms of worship. So, also Nakamari, what was rejected and called weird, are sources that did not, in the third and fourth centuries, confirm the legitimacy of what we're calling the Roman Catholic Church, which was endorsed, as you know, by Constantine in the fourth century and transformed from being a persecuted minority movement to becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. And if you joined it, instead of being thrown into torture and execution, you could be promoted and get a higher salary or 
you know, it, there are huge benefits in joining the Roman Catholic Church when that is the emperor's affiliation. And so what survived in both cases are traditions that confirm the authorities of the traditions that claim that same authority today, both in Jewish traditions and in Christian sources. What we lost is something that every other religious tradition that you and I know about has. If you look at Buddhism, you look at Islam, you look at Judaism, Hinduism, they all have an exoteric tradition. That is what you teach is the basic elements, the basic ethical and religious premises, right, of a Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist group. Then they have esoteric traditions which are mystical. And in Islam, uh, there there is mystical Islam. In Buddhism, there is Tantra. Uh, in Judaism, there is Kabbalah, which means tradition, but it really means mystical tradition. And those traditions are reserved to be advanced level teaching. Now, what you had happened in the Christian movement is that the bishops <clears throat> censored everything that was in that second category. That is, they endorsed what text you should read in worship, um, what we now call the New Testament collection, 27 books. They endorse certain patterns of authority, which you find in many Christian churches throughout the world. They endorsed um, beliefs, systems of beliefs that they felt should be shared by anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. What they left out are all these other traditions, which many say should, should are advanced level, which are mystical, which go into other dimensions. But they're not for immature people because they can make them feel inflated in some foolish way, you know, like, oh, I'm part of God or some, some nonsense that could be megalomaniac instead of devout, right? So you don't get that kind of mysticism in, in, in most Christian traditions. They simply censored it. So what you find in these secret traditions are some mystical traditions, which I think are rooted in Jewish sources, in which Jesus speaks about the image of God in every person, and that if you come to recognize you may not know that the image of God, which is a metaphor for a certain kind of energy that is that connects you with a divine source, the connection between yourself and the divine, you, you may not even know you have such a connection. But once, if, if you are told to look for it and you recognize that you have such a connection, you can seek for it not in traditions outside but within yourself and you can find it through meditation and prayer and devotion and you can find a way to a source of relationship between you and the divine and that is something I would say everyone would know is not for amateurs it's an advanced level teaching 
But it's one that Orthodox Christianity, in any of its familiar forms, suppresses. Perhaps to keep people safe, but also to keep them within the boundaries of what, say, I might call Roman Catholic tradition or evangelical tradition or Russian Orthodox tradition or Pentecostal tradition or Mormon tradition. In your book, you mentioned that one of the implications of the Nag Hammadi text is precisely that it suggests there may have been esoteric teachings by Jesus that he reserved for his closest disciples. Well, not suggest. It's definitely states. And actually, you will find that, as you know, in, in the Gospel of Mark, the earliest of the New Testament Gospels to be written, which in Mark 4, it says Jesus, when he was alone with the disciples, Mark 4, 10, 11, when he was alone with the disciples, he spoke privately to them, and he told them, uh, and he said, to you alone is given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those outside, everything is in parables. I'm not going to tell them. And the parables aren't meant to be nice little teaching stories that make things easy to understand. They're actually obscure images that hide the meaning, the secret meaning that the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament says Jesus taught only to a few. Now, these other texts, like the Gospel of Thomas, say this is, these are the secret teachings that the Laban Jesus spoke. So Mark says Jesus taught secretly, but he doesn't tell you what he said. The Gospel of Thomas says, yes, he taught secretly, and these are some of the things he said. Ordinarily, a tradition in Jewish tradition, from which, of course, Jesus comes, is that you don't write down secret traditions because they can be easily misunderstood. But somebody wrote them down. And I suspect that we have, among these so-called secret gospels, secret teachings which were not supposed to be written. And among Christians, they were later called heresy and blasphemous and horrible and wrong. But they were actually these secret teachings. Now, here's the big question. Are the ones that were found in Egypt really the secret teachings of Jesus? The answer is we don't know. But we don't really know how much in the Gospel of Mark is really the teaching of Jesus either, or in Matthew or Luke. There's a lot of overlap here, though, in the Gospel of Thomas with Matthew and Luke. And so... The teachings in the Gospel of Thomas seem to me quite plausibly those of a first-century rabbi like Jesus. And they re reflect Jewish mystical traditions that, that only became written down about a thousand years later, 1,500 years later from Spanish Jewish communities, um, Sephardic communities, much later. I think what's so exciting for Latter-day Saints is that we have some distinctive theological teachings that come from Joseph Smith that were a radical departure from the burned yes. over district in New York that find surprising resonance in some of these texts. And 
You just mentioned two. One would be Mormons believe in a pre-existence where we were in a, a spiritual family and there was a decision to come down to earth and that Jesus would be our savior. And that so that we have a continuity, a spiritual continuity before this earth. The second is that we also distinctively believe in our more ontological relationship with God, that we are, in fact, more than creatures. We are children. We are sons and daughters of, of God. And I, I wanted to ask about two more that I picked up from, from, your, from your text that are also very distinctive LDS doctrines, which find expression in some of these texts. And one is on the divine feminine, if you can yes. talk about that. And the other is a, a different framing of both the fall and Eve's role in it. All of those things you mentioned are very interesting. And I mean, it sounds as though I speak as an outsider to your tradition, but the, the Joseph Smith rediscovered some of the themes that had been very much suppressed in in early in Catholic tradition. And that's what I learned from my Mormon colleague at the time. He spoke about those. Because these are teachings that that are considered quite advanced level. And um, and for that reason they've been utterly censored, as I said, in in Catholic tradition. When I say Catholic, it's that is the basis for almost all of the Christian denominations that we see today. So I'm speaking also of Protestant and Orthodox churches. Although Orthodox traditions, whether Greek, Russian, Ethiopic, have much more opened us to mystical traditions, which are maintained in those communions in, di in different ways. So we found in Ethiopia, in Ethiopic, a fragment of something called the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was entirely destroyed in, in Western churches, although it was translated into many, many languages uh, thousands of years ago. And in it, Mary speaks as one of the major disciples, and she speaks about her revelations and visions. That's another thing, Zach, besides all of the things you mentioned. One of the important themes of the Gospel of Mary, say, or the Apocryphon of James, or many other texts from Nakamadi. Let me just say that of the 51 texts, there's a huge variety. They're very, they're not homogenous. And I only work on a few of them that I really like better than others. So I won't speak of all of, all of them. They're not the same quality as I read them. But, but those that are, of which I'm speaking, Gospel of Mary, Apocryphon of James, Pistis Sophia, which means oh, faith, wisdom. All of these claim that you can have an ongoing revelation that surpasses the revelations already given. Now, that is major for the LDS Church. Can you have an ongoing revelation that's valid? The Catholic Church says no. The only, if you have a revelation tonight and, and you know, 
you have an angelic vision. If you're in those communions, that means nothing unless it agrees with Catholic doctrine. That's the way the Catholic Church judges saints, right? If you're going to be a saint and a mystic, and they really rein them in, you can only have a revelation that agrees with previous doctrines. So if you have a revelation that doesn't, you are a heretic, and you could be burned at the stake in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries, right? So what, what Joseph Smith did is obviously heresy from that point of view, the claiming of, a, of another revelation. That is something that these texts are open to, and that's what makes them very different and also very threatening to people concerned to preserve nothing but the Orthodox traditions. Now I look at what most people call Christianity as a very narrow stream and all of the other tributaries, all of the other banks of those, of where those streams might go are just, are just excluded. So that's why we only know certain kinds of Christianity. Absolutely. And one of the points you make is the problem with a certain narrow expression of Christian teaching is that it may only find resonance with a particular kind of person or even a particular stage of life. Whereas if we do become more comfortable with a, a much broader expression of Jesus's teachings and the tradition that came from him, well, suddenly, wherever you are in life, whatever kind of person, whatever kind of spiritual music you respond to, there will be a place for you. And so rather than thinking of the different Christian traditions as competing to assert a one true way of being Christian, a better way might be more like the, the body of Christ metaphor, that there's just so many ways to approach God and each, each path has its different strengths and responds to different needs. And as you say, the word heresy means choice and having that different choice to approach the divine can be really nourishing. It can, and yet whatever spiritual truths come through any of these traditions, they may be revelations, right? Genuine revelations from a divine source, but they come through human hands, human brains, and a, you know, people with particular particular questions and particular idiosyncrasies idiosyncrasies and attitudes and which are shaped by their traditions so that um well question for example of whether slavery is uh is necessary and divinely ordained as most christians in the united states would have affirmed uh even through the civil war um and many others challenged it on the basis of of biblical teachings about freedom and brotherhood in Christ, sisterhood in Christ. So I, I always think of what Leon Tolstoy, the great 
Russian novelist, when he had a spiritual awakening in the middle of his life, it's in the beautiful little book called The Confession. He says he tried very hard. He, he had a, a spiritual experience that, that made him realize how much he longed to go back to the church. So he went back to the church, Russian Orthodox Church, and learned from the priest everything he would learn to be baptized again. And, and he went back for the baptism and the reinstatement into the church. And he said, no, I, I can't do it. I don't believe all of that. I, I, I just don't believe all of that. The creed, the way they're talking, I, some of it is right and some of it doesn't seem right. And how do you live with those contradictions? What Tolstoy said is, I've, I've got to spend the rest of my life sorting out what is true from what isn't true, even within the, my own tradition. And this happened, Zach, last week in my class of 230 students at Princeton, class on how Christianity began, two students came to my office. They were very troubled about a question. And they said, two young men, and they said, we've both grown up in Orthodox Jewish homes. And we, we, we belong to the Orthodox community. But we don't agree with everything that our community demands. We don't agree with, with certain claims they make, certain traditions, certain things they require, certain kinds of behavior. How do you stay in a tradition? How do you identify with one and, and still criticize it? And this is a question other people have asked me. And I think it's this is the gift of the study of the history of religion. Because... It doesn't necessarily contradict your religious commitments, but it allows for a perspective on them that can frankly relativize some of them. Question of the superiority of males over females spiritually as a natural human gift. That's part of Jewish tradition. It's part of Christian tradition. It's part of Islam. It's part of Buddhism. All of the ones we know in historical tradition, this is not even a question until pretty recently. Well, it was a question in Christian tradition thousands of years ago, and somebody wrote the Gospel of Mary, seeing Mary Magdalene as a disciple not only equal to the others, but receiving revelations on her own and a teacher uh, to be respected by the others, and that Gospel was utterly censored. For thousands of years. So these are not new questions about what in these are just human traditions that we may need to, want to, challenge, correct, discard, even. And I happen to think that's important because we started by saying Christianity is not a thing. You can't accept it all. It's indigestible. It's 2,000 years worth of liturgy, prayers, poems, stories, saints, martyrs. It's just innumerable traditions, a collections of traditions, right? Christianity is collections of traditions, thousands of. Them. 
So the question is, which are you going to accept? Which of these, as the Quakers would say, speak to your condition? And, and that, I think, is a really important question. It's not that you can just pick and choose. They call this cafeteria Christianity. This is some evangelicals call me Elaine Pagan for even suggesting that you could do this. I have to do this, or I would have left this tradition long ago. So it's not that you can't be in it and use your mind to criticize and question or let go of certain tenets that many people in your community agree with or disagree with. Those things have always happened, and I think they need to happen because, as I said, no matter how much genuine revelation you may believe there is, there it's coming through rather flawed people, all of it. And um, I think we need to be aware of that. This is an extremely live issue for Latter-day Saints right now. So many people, yes. young and old, are leaving the tradition because they have deep disagreements of course. with some of its current teachings and, and even kind of more broadly, its culture. So I, th- I think it could be extremely valuable for our audience to hear from you. How did you do it? How have you managed to deal with the fact that it's, it's not so simple as you just believe what you're told and you don't ask questions? But Neither was the answer sufficient for you to leave it and become a materialist atheist. No. How did you wrestle with this? That's, that's the problem. The way these traditions set it up is we give you the holy truth, and you have to swallow it whole. Otherwise, you're out. And I believe that many people have, many people I know have left Christian tradition because it's boring, or because they just don't agree that Jesus was God in human form, or because they don't like its attitudes about social issues or ethical issues, which are complicated issues in our culture, as you know. Issues about sexuality, for example, of all kinds. Issues about abortion, issues about authority. All of it comes down to authority one way or the other. So, How I do it is I engage in these traditions, but you don't have to just accept it all. You can keep your mind alive and and try to be as clear as possible about what, what, as you say, deeply resonates with you as spiritual nourishment and what doesn't. And that means you become also a critic of the tradition while you're a participant. Some of us have to do that. Some people don't. They don't get worried about those things, or they don't let themselves think about it, or maybe these are just not issues for them. But for the rest of us, I think that looking at the histories of the traditions can be of enormous help. That's one reason I do it. Teach what I teach. Because I care about these traditions, and I live in them to a considerable extent. However, I think for you, you're not just a scholar who finds it fascinating the way, you know, you could be studying uh, any kind of tradition and find it fascinating. It, it is alive for you. And I, I think for people who 
either have in the past and maybe yearn for in the future new life to emerge from that wrestling. Yeah. That's that's a very different relationship to religion than just seeing it as you know human culture. It could could be anything. It just happens to be religion. And and one thing you you say in your writing, which strikes me as true too, is that religion can open up new relationships mm-hmm. that are not available any other way, or at least harder. And that religion is uniquely suited to activating both the head and the heart. And I was wondering if you could speak to those those two ways of seeing for people who are like, I, I want to be religious, but I'm struggling to answer the question of why. Well, it's a very important question you raised. Um, when I wrote the most recent book, Why Religion? I guess you've seen that one. I did something unconventional and and weird for a scholar to do. I wrote a book that is intensely personal about about it's a memoir. Um, partly because I needed at that point in my life to go back to some of the most difficult things I ever dealt with, which were the the death of my six year old son. And, and then of my wonderful husband after 20 years of marriage in an accident. So, it, and it was a horrendous trauma, but we had just adopted two children and I couldn't, I couldn't just stop. I had to take care of them. And um, so I wrote a book that is both very personal, but it's also about how the work I do, as you rightly note, is a kind of spiritual quest. It's not just, oh, isn't this interesting, odd thing people do, religion. It's something I knew that I needed and engage, you know. And so the work has been a, a spiritual quest, but it, it means that you have some of us have to keep asking questions. Not everybody does. Not everybody is has those questions. Some people are quite content with what they receive. I wasn't one of those. <laughs> and you weren't either. So, but I, I, I'm very much an advocate of saying that doesn't mean you have to throw it all away. Because traditional Christianity says, well, either believe this or you're an atheist. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, because it suggests that these traditions consist of simply a set of beliefs, like a like a creed. I do think that much of these, of what these traditions teach, as you suggest, is how to be part of a community, how to practice in that community, how particularly the LDS community takes care of its own people and takes care of the needs of people, creates relationships within the group that shares that tradition. And it's more, it's more about experiences we have. It's more about emotion that we often think, that it is about what's up in your head, because that can change a lot. I don't think of religion as an intellectual practice. I'm really not so much interested in theology as Calvin or Luther or anybody else wrote it, because they're pretty boring. I'm very much interested in the Gospels, which are narratives, the secret Gospels, which 
offer spiritual teachings in the form that they do. These are not so much about what you believe, but who you are, how you live, how you engage in a search for the divine or for understanding, spiritual understanding. And I think that's such an important question. I'd, I'd like to return to two historical moments or, or teachings because I think the implications are so amazing. So the one is to return to what some of the texts that you have studied um, say about the divine feminine. Mormons sometimes call her heavenly mother. What are some of the teachings that you found there? And similarly, what do some of these teachings say about Eve's role, both of which can revolutionize the way that Christians have thought about women in their place? And also about Mary Magdalene. Many of these texts seem to go back to Proverbs 8, which is a kind of a poem uh, about the role of divine wisdom. And in that poem, ancient Jewish poem, she is seen as, as one who was with the Lord when he created the earth. And she's a feminine energy. She, she says she created the world with him. It says God created the world in wisdom. And some people suggested that wisdom is the divine energy, the feminine energy, in which the metaphor here is conception, in which he created the world. And she brought forth the world. So, because the, the Hebrew word for wisdom, chokhmah, or for spirit, ruach, are both feminine words. So, when the Hebrew Bible speaks about the spirit of God moved over the deep waters, one could imagine a feminine energy or as wisdom. So, that's where the, the term comes from. And in Jewish mysticism, it's much is spoken about the transcendent element of the divine, which is seen as masculine, and the imminent, which is seen as feminine. This is deeply part of Kabbalah, and it's in these texts as well. Eve also, in Orthodox Jewish tradition, is seen as the one, the fallible creature who led Adam into sin the one who brought sin into the world. And St. Paul says that, well, he didn't, but somebody said it in his name in Second Timothy. Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was deceived and brought us into sin, right? She caused death to come into the world. In these texts, there are some that see Eve as a manifestation of the Divine Mother, as even the creator of the world. There's a text called Trimorphic Protonoia in which the Divine Feminine speaks, there's a more beautiful text called Thunder, Complete Mind, that speaks as a divine feminine energy in the world. It's an absolutely extraordinary poem that one of my friends who is raised in Iran as a Muslim found so powerful for herself in recognizing this feminine element of the divine, which in Islam is simply not present. So I think these Texts offer many more range of questions, interpretations, metaphorical understandings of gender than you find in the Orthodox texts. Both whether you're talking about Eve or whether you're talking about the Divine Mother, in the Gospel of Truth, Jesus is said to bring 
all of the people. And this as another element you spoke of, Zach, which is the primordial beginning. The gospel of truth starts with before the beginning of time. That kind of speculation before the beginning of creation is explicitly prohibited by a Christian bishop here in this and by Jewish rabbis at the same time. You are not supposed to talk about that. That's another forbidden thing that that Joseph Smith picked up and that is there in Origins teaching and in many of these. It's about the primordial beginning of time. So there are all of these I mean, if you're in the LDS community, you know you, that community is also already broken out of Orthodox tradition in radical ways. And that's why so many people who are outsiders are very suspicious of it. But it's that breaking out that allows for different kinds of experiences and perceptions. One passage that you mentioned in your book, Why Religion comes from the secret revelation of John, where it's, quote, I think God is speaking. I am the father, I am the mother, and I am the son. Yes. And actually, it's Jesus speaking from the light that John sees. And I am the father, I am the mother, and I am the son. And that anyone reading this in Syriac or Hebrew or Aramaic would have seen mother as a feminine word in those languages, which would have meant the Holy Spirit. It's been such a joy to learn from you, Elena. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Elaine Pagels. And a big thanks to Elaine also for coming on the show. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really does help us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org.